there's just one place to go for all your spatula needs. Spatula City! Spatula City! A giant warehouse of spatulas for every occasion. Thousands to choose from in every shape, size, and color. And because we eliminate the middleman, we can sell all our spatulas factory direct to you. Where do you go when you want to buy name brand spatulas at a fraction of retail cost? Spatula City! Spatula City! And this weekend only, take advantage of our special liquidation sale. Buy nine spatulas, get the tenth one for just one penny. Don't forget, they make great Christmas presents. And what better way to say I love you than with the gift of a spat... Hey everybody, and welcome to another bonus patron episode of 80s All Over. This is, of course, Scott Weinberg, the loud one, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the slightly less loud, Drew McWeeny. How are you, sir? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing okay this week. Uh, how are you doing on your, uh, little competition thing? The Schmodown. Oh, uh, well, we won the team match, uh, the oh, team title oh. for the second time. Okay. And then my uh, partner in the uh, Schmodown, Sam Levine, retired. So we are uh, relinquishing the belts, but we are going out on top. So, oh, that's great! That's epic! Congratulations! And Thank I you. Wanna welcome. Uh, why don't you introduce our guest? Uh, I'm very excited. This is. Uh, I know our guests work largely by reputation and by reading it over the years and by buying books he has written. And uh, I think we have run parallel in a lot of ways, but um, have not had a lot of opportunities to meet and speak. So I'm really excited to welcome Nathan Rabin to the podcast today. Hello, it is an honor to be talking to you. This is fun because I think you have uh, the the kind of writing you do deals with the breadth of uh, sort of film history and not just current stuff. So I think asking you to to come on and play like this, hopefully uh, you've got something in the bag that we won't expect. I think you're the right guy to do this. Well, I have very little to say about contemporary uh, film. I kind of fell off that bandwagon a couple of years ago when I stopped being a film critic. Uh, but I'm very excited to talk about movies that are terrible and movies that are cheesy and movies that are transcendent. Uh, well, uh, most of our listeners will know Nathan from his voluminous work on the old school AV club. Uh, and then he moved over to the dissolve, which unfortunately did dissolve. And but you can now. Find a lot of Nathan's work at Nathan Rabin's Happy Place. Why don't you explain to the 80s all over listeners why they should subscribe to your product? Uh, well, um, I've been doing this shit for a very, very, very long time. I'm 21 years into writing about popular culture. God, I started in 1997. Uh, when uh, The Onion was this small, plucky little underdog that just kind of uh, had this little office in what was known as the Popcorn District of Madison, Wisconsin. Um, and yeah, I just kind of, I was lucky enough to kind of um, grow with uh, that publication. Uh, I started a column called My World of Flops. Or originally, it was My Year of Flops in uh, 2007. Jesus, 11 fucking years ago. Um, and the idea was, God, I was, I was uh, shopping a memoir and I was very, very, very worried that my memoir would not uh, sell, that I would not find a publisher for it. Um, I'd actually written a, a, a manuscript, uh, it's not really a book if it doesn't get published, about my experiences doing a television show called Movie Club with John Ridley in 2004 and 2005. Uh, John Ridley went on 
to win the Academy Award for uh, 12 Years a Slave. Uh, and one of my co-hosts, uh, Josh Kuhn, his birthday's today, he won the MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, and AMC became incredibly classy and, you know, Breaking Bad and Mad Men. But in 2004 and 2005, that show was super fucking cheesy. But in a really fascinating, really... I, I was that one person who went to uh, Hollywood and thought I had such amazing experiences that everybody needed to know about them. Uh, but I that was not the case. Uh, I remember my agent, God bless him, um, he was kind of pitching it as uh, sort of Augustine Burroughs writing uh, The Devil's Candy. Uh, the wonderful uh, Julie Solomon book about the making of uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. If you haven't read it, please do. It's the one great thing uh, to come out of uh, the Bonfire of the Vanities. Um, except what he ultimately found out is that nobody's going to spend $22 for a book about a TV show that nobody had ever heard of, which was the case with Movie Club with John Ridley. So I ended up um, starting this uh, column. And originally the idea was to just be one year. Uh, I think it was either two entries a week or, or one a week. Um, and yeah, it was just this kind of, I kind of reinvented myself. And I've always kind of felt like a failure. I've always kind of felt like a loser. I always kind of felt like an underdog. And I felt like, well, if I kind of you know show movies that have been misunderstood and, and uh, underrated uh, and unfairly maligned, if I show them the love and attention and validation that I desperately seek as a human being, I can create something kind of cool and interesting and neat. And it was such a success that I ended up doing it um, longer than the first year. And then it became a, a very modestly selling book. Um, and then at a certain point, I just decided like, I, I love movies, that's the heart of what I do, but I kind of want to reinvent it. So I changed it from my year of flops to my world of flops. And it became not just about uh, movies, but about everything, about music, about television show. I think one of the first entries that I wrote on that uh, accord was uh, Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Uh, I had to watch 22 fucking episodes of that TV show. Um, and, oh my that, God. Show, that show is bad as its reputation indicates because I've only seen the first two episodes. It's it's trans oh, The first episode is actually not bad. It's okay. one of those things where the 30 Rock uh, first episode is like, meh. And then the Studio 60 first episode was pretty good, definitely far and away the best ever. So people are like, oh, wow. And then, yeah, history has been very, very kind to one of those shows because it's great and very unkind to the other. Uh, but yeah, I, I have a certain morbid fascination with it. I mean, it really is Aaron Sorkin at his worst and at his most ridiculously self-parodic. I mean, I've actually come to have a... <laughs> A fair affection for Aaron Sorkin. I mean, he's written some pretty fucking amazing screenplays. Uh, Social Network, Charlie Wilson's War. Like, the, the motherfucker can write. Uh, but he can also overwrite uh, very, very vividly. Um, and then the, the last kind of crazy uh, twist and turn that my World of Flops took was uh, it got canceled by the AV Club on around its 10th anniversary, which is weird. I guess at that point, it's probably one of the longest running uh, columns online. Uh, it also got, I introduced the phrase, Manic Pixie Dream Girl mm -hmm. uh, in, in the very first entry, which was on Elizabethtown. And I kind of felt like, if for no other fucking reason, <laughs> like I coined this phrase that kind of captured the world to the point where I'm kind of proud of it and I'm kind of sick of it. Um, but, you know, they allowed me to take uh, my... Uh, World of Flops to uh, my website, my personal website, Nathan Raven's Happy Place. Uh, and that's been uh, an amazing experience. And I've written about some, again, I can just kind of blow up the format. So two of the, uh, two of the flops that I wrote about for, uh, you know, sort of the Nathan Raven's Happy Place version of my World of Flops are Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. <laughs> um, and then 
they sit on like the big uh, there, and then uh, Donald Trump's first year in office. Um, yeah, very much a, a, a fiasco. Uh, there. Uh, how about, how about, I could throw you a suggestion for my year flops. How about an, an, an essay on New Coke? That's you know the thing about that is there are certain things that I would love to do like carry the carry the musical or um, you know Spider Man Turn Off the Dark but I can't or or like for example um, God Jerry Lewis did a uh, an infamous talk show in the early sixties and he was the highest paid person on television and they gave him basically carte blanche to either between an hour and a half or and two hours of TV and nobody can do an hour and a half or two hours of TV like every night or every week and ended up just being this enormous enormous failure and he put out an ad in the papers apologizing for it and i and dick cavett was a writer for it and i would love 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 to write about the jerry lewis show but i will never have an opportunity to just as i will probably never have an opportunity do you think it's like the scarcity like if if, if a show that you kind of like and it's gone after one year then the the fact that it's gone makes it infinitely more interesting i kind of and again there are so many um I, the world just makes everything so much more interesting. Like uh, before this whole John Chris Galuski, uh, it, uh, I was very tempted to write about his uh, sort of the adult version of uh, Ren and Stimpy that lasted six episodes, I think four of which actually aired and was so appalling that Billy West, uh, you know, who's not, you know, the most uh, delicate individual in the world. I was like, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'm not going to degrade myself doing this. So I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, I wonder if I can hold my nose. Uh, I also don't want to give any money to John Chris Galuski directly or indirectly. So it's, it's, it's kind of fascinating. And there are certain things like, I don't know, I also have a column called uh, The Zeros for uh, Rotten Tomatoes uh, that I really like. And I write about movies that uh, get the zero. Uh, you know, from, from the critics. Drew, uh, Drew, what have we covered that might be a zero? Tarzan the Ape Man? Oh, oh God, yeah. yeah. Uh, that that is, has to be very bottom of the basement. Yeah, I mean, that's very much like I, uh, I, I had a column for The Dissolve called uh, The Forgot Busters, and it was about movies that were... You that know, I loved. 20, I that, yeah. yeah, the top 25, uh, but then kind of forgotten uh, by the culture, and... <laughs> I'm wrong a whole lot. Uh, part of the ways in which I'm wrong is the first entry in Forgot Busters about movies that were forgotten by everybody was on Space Jam. Oh, <laughs> wow. a year old, I'm like, man, that was so important when, you know, 1996 when I was 20 years old and obsessed with Michael Jordan. You know what, though, Nathan, in your defense, there was a period there where Space Jam was inv- invisible. It took a couple of years for those little kids to grow up and re-love it. <laughs> it, it, it really did, you know, and then like generations came onto it, and, and like it's, it's horrifying to me that there are an entire generation that knows the Looney Tunes as the people as Michael Jordan's side oh. from yeah. Stamps, yeah. and I just want like Frank Tashlin and, and Robert McKinson's ghosts to like go murder everybody uh, who was involved with Space Jam because my God, that was such a, uh, a terrible. Although- it's an atrocious movie. Drew and I have been struggling through uh, now four of the compiled uh, Looney Tunes movies, the, the the Fantastic Island and the just the, the really lazy compilation movies. And as bad as Space Jam is, at least it's an original screenplay, I guess. Uh, That's true. It's, uh, it's not just reruns in movie form, which is what it is. Yeah. A, it is a 90-minute ad. A lot of movies have ads, but Space Jam really is a 90-minute ad. It's, it's well, un- literally directed by Joe Pike, a king of the commercial. So, yeah, it's it's about as on the nose as possible. It's And it's weird because that's happened to me repeatedly, Nathan, where I've written about something and I forget the generation that came up behind us. 
And uh, for example, Scott just mentioned the Schmodown, the movie trivia thing I do. And I've noticed that my weak spot is all the kids live action films from the early 90s, like Rookie of the Year and The Sandlot and stuff that I just. Did I you get stumped those. on an Agent oh, Cody Banks? Uh, no, but I could have. Yeah. That whole little, that world of live action kids films from the early 90s, I have zero connection to and sat out completely. So that is a blind spot for me. And yet now there's a generation writing who those movies are literally important, informative to them. And so we're going to get little big league retrospectives and yeah. where are the kids from the Sandlot now? And we're going to get you all know that. What, from uh, Drew and Nathan, 20 years ago, we would have written a, I still kind of love the Goonies now in our forties. We're not going to write that piece. So I think that the younger movie critics who kind of have a little bit of affection for Space Jam in another 10 years are going to look at it and go, Ugh. I think everybody has to set their I think every generation has to set their own canon in in place. We did that very hard with the, you know, like the summer of 82, making the case for that. And I don't think the generation before us gave a shit about that year the same way we did. But we've certainly made a case for why it was important and significant to us. And so I do. I think there's things that we have a blind spot on that this next group of younger critics, they're going to have their own view about. And it's really it's it's eye opening because it does remind you that, yeah, they have a very different relationship to pop culture than we do. Yep. No, uh, let's, uh, let us segue into our normal number one favorite topic when we have a guest particularly one of the film criticism variety. And we asked Nate if he wouldn't mind jotting down a handful of underrated, underloved. I don't know if he designated these as flops or not, but uh, let's start off with your list and we'll see what uh, what comes up. Sure. Should I go movie by movie or just? Yeah. Uh, this first one actually is uh, I covered in, uh, in my Forgot uh, Busters column yeah. uh, because I thought, oh, my God, there's, you know, this movie is a huge hit in 1986. Uh, and then people have kind of forgotten about it. What I discovered rewatching it for the thing is that this movie is fucking amazing and I love it. Uh, it's also the I'm running reruns uh, on my website because my wife had a baby 12 days ago. Um, so I'm trying to be a dad and you know be present and stockpile stuff for the future. Um, so uh, Cobra. Cosmatos, yes. Yeah, but he, he made, I think he's an interesting guy where he's made three kind of pop classic movies in Cobra, uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two, and Tombstone. Uh, although apparently he, he didn't do a whole lot of the directing of those movies. I kind of heard that Kurt Russell did a lot of the ghost directing of Tombstone. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, as you might imagine, tends to be the director when he takes on projects. Um, but yeah, Cobra, again, there's just, there's a purity to it. And there's just this vulgar. And part of it also is, I mean, I guess originally it was supposed to be over two hours long. It's supposed to have all of these subplots and all the stuff that you find on every action movie. And what they did was at the very last minute, you know, they kind of wanted to, I guess, fit in another showing uh, every day. So they cut it down to like 85 minutes. And it's almost like this, crazy fucking art film where there's no subplots. There's no subtext. It's just this violent, like sort of feral, it's sort of like dirty, dirty Harry. If he was like this feral monster, um, taking on this ax murder gang and, you know, this sort of, um, uh, sort of fever dream version of, you know, sort of what the Reagan era world of, of, of violence, uh, was all about. So yeah, Cobra, I think definitely uh, is the True. first uh, my, Cobra? Well, you know, I, I mentioned in our last episode, we, we just covered of unknown origin and um, I ended up meeting and getting to know George Cosmatos for a while um, oh, towards yeah. the end of his life. And 
hung out with him a lot at a, a cigar club. And he's one of those old school, came out of the studio system in Europe, um, journeyman filmmakers who shows up where you tell him to, keeps the cattle in line, and then is done. And there was a real no-nonsense thing to him. He loved one kind of movie. He made a totally different kind of movie. And I do think several times in his career, he was the guy that the studio hired because insurance companies would insure him. And he was just there as a name while somebody else was calling shots. That certainly happened on uh, on Cobra and infamously happened on Tombstone. That's that's one that, you know, there's still conversation. It's like Poltergeist. It's who directed Tombstone. The only time I saw Cobra was that I was in my like, you know, wise ass late teens or early 20s. And by that point, I had grown out of Stallone. And I remember very clearly just thinking, oh, they just upped the nasty. That's all this is. Yeah. I, I am looking forward to enjoying it as just that, that as just violent junk. I mean, like, I think that I was just a little at that point. I was the fact that you can recognize that it was a flimsy product makes you angry or something. Whereas when you're older, you're like, yeah, okay. So they made a cynical action movie. I'm okay with that. It to me has always been the movie that Beverly Hills cop would have been if Stallone had actually stayed and been in that movie instead well, that, of Eddie Murphy. I mean, that was the, I mean, that was the actual thing was he was at one point going to star in uh, Beverly Hills cop. And he apparently said, you know, <laughs> There isn't, there's too many jokes, there's too much levity, this needs to have no jokes, no levity, and me killing just just countries full of people. And you just like kill like an entire uh, small war worth of casualties. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so, and oh, God, if I remember correctly, I think the story is that he, because he co-wrote the screenplay, and I think it was based on a novel that was later adapted into the William Baldwin Cindy Crawford vehicle fair game. <laughs> it has the exact same plot, except, you know, if, if Sylvester Stallone went and got his you know, Sylvester Stallone juice all over, you know, the same reasonable plot. So if I remember correctly, Sylvester Stallone at one point said, you know, can I, you know, I think, you know, for the sake of, you know, publicity, my name should be on the novel now too. Uh, it should be attributed to the dude who wrote the novel and Sylvester Stallone. Awesome. Like, it doesn't work that way. Awesome. Just, like just you thought ego, you know, like a film adaptation. So that's the crazy thing is that he he somehow took the script for Beverly Hills Cop and like fused it with the script for this other movie that turned into something that was completely different. Yeah, because I mean, again, I think like I think they actually did the gender switch thing. With uh, with fair game, but uh, yeah, yeah. Oh God, I'm not telling you need to go back and see fair game, which is a terrible, terrible motion picture. No, I will gladly revisit Cobra. I mm. doubt very highly I'm going to be revisiting fair game. Yeah, I think most of she's a lovely woman, not a great actress. What else you got? William Baldwin. That's weird because William Baldwin totally had a moment there where he uh, was a bankable movie star for two years. You know, he started in Backdraft, big hit. Uh, he was in Sliver. <laughs> Big hit. Neither, I think, is because people fucking remember who Bill Baldwin is. Oh no, uh, he was the draw. He was the draw. One hundred percent. For a couple of years there, I think you know it. Just even if they were good actors, I think that's a bad call because you're just going to get him confused. Yeah. All right. Uh, next it's one. It's to think that yeah, that uh, Stephen Baldwin of all people is going to be Justin Bieber's father-in-law, uh, and Justin Bieber has a terrible, terrible taste in judgment and discretion, and hundreds of millions of dollars. 
So part of me uh, imagines that, uh, you know, uh, Justin Bieber is going to take Stephen Baldwin's uh, skateboarding ministry to undreamed of new heights. (laughs) That's great. What's your next movie? Okay, and uh, this is kind of going on a uh, – the first – you may notice the theme. Uh, also, uh, the first one is uh, First Blood. Oh, um, cool. I think also I, I – part of, you know, uh, I, did a, I did a project um, the first year of Nathan Rams Happy Place where I went and I looked at all of the uh, 10 movies in the Canon movie box set. Uh, I've always been kind of fascinated by Canon. I always thought it was like an incredible. Ooh, we're going to have a sidebar. Sidebar. We'll get back to your underrated list in a second. Okay. Okay. Let's talk uh, Canon. Uh, but so one of the things about that is that I watched five movies starring Chuck Norris. And oh. Chuck Norris is the most boring human being in the world. I mean, yeah, one of our running that- gags in the show is that Drew's not a fan, and I, I hate, I can't stand Chuck Norris. He's, he's, he's terrible. I mean, the, the the good thing that's kind of come out of it was the Walker Texas Ranger lever on, on yeah. Conan. Uh, that's the one that kind of acknowledged the ridiculousness. And I think part of it was that Chuck Norris is so unforgivably boring. And yeah. some of the movies are no, like, you know is your is your favorite one? Can I just cheat? Is your favorite one Invasion USA? Um, it's it's up there. Okay, uh, so yeah, okay. tell us about this canon set. Uh, but Invasion USA is, is part of the canon set, uh, and it has yeah, it has five <laughs> Chuck Norris movies. Because I think it's very easy to license Chuck Norris movies. I think if they could have gotten know, tough guys, don't dance. Uh, that's a slightly more interesting motion picture. But I think part of it is, is Sylvester Stallone is so fucking fascinating compared to to Chuck Norris. Yes, because um, Chuck Norris has no personality. He's just as blank, good at fighting. And wears a lot of denim and a lot of jeans. And Sylvester Stallone has too much personality. Like, he's crazy. And everything that he does has this weird intensity to it. And I think First Blood is a fascinating uh, example of a, a movie that kind of has a wrong reputation. And I think it kind of lives, it's, it's the rare first film in a series that lives in the shadow of the second film. I think when people think about Rambo, they think of First Blood Part Two, and you know they think about you know Sylvester Stallone and James Cameron wrote that screenplay. Uh, two people who know how to tell stories that are rousing to red-blooded American men. Um, but First Blood is such a dark film. I mean, it's, it's basically this very grim, very gritty character study about this man who is broken from being in Vietnam. This man, he's a man of violence who doesn't understand. Um, civilization who doesn't understand anything but survival and fighting and death and honor and just kind of plopping him in this kind of American backwoods and pitting him against the police. Um, so it's fascinating to me that they took this very dark, very grim, you know, not terribly patriotic or heroic movie and transformed it into this Reagan era fantasy of you know winning Vietnam uh, and going back and freeing all of the POWs and more than I can because he was raised on this stuff but I always thought it was weird even even as a kid that First Blood was had shades of gray you know there were good and bad in all the characters it, it was not an easy fix it was a, a quandary it was a, a, a dilemma of a movie whereas you know this uh this drifter comes into a town and is literally fucked with bad by the local police. And, you know, who are you supposed to root for in a most action American action films? You would root for the cops, of course. But 
they're the bad guys. Well, most of them are. Uh, And it's a fascinating movie that has a lot of gray areas. And Rambo First Blood Part Two has no gray areas. Well, it reminds me, it reminds me franchise wise of what happens with Nightmare on Elm Street, because with the original, what you get is something that is singular and kind of has a specific vision and a very specific tone and voice. And then over the course of making sequels, they play to the worst possible version of the thing. Very and, true. And, and I think that it with First Blood, what is beautiful about it is that it is very much the 70s treatment of John Rambo. And I, you know, we've made that we we talked about recently uh, Star 80 on the show and how that can sort of be argued as the end of the 70s filmmaking uh, voice, because it really was still a very auteur driven movie and very personal. And I think First Blood feels like it fits in the 70s school of filmmaking, whereas the sequel is clearly a, a hard start to what the 80s are. So it's weird watching those and realizing that there was that big a political shift in the country between those two films where they're playing to different audiences. Well, and I, and again, I just, I wrote about uh, staying alive uh, for my zeros column and that was written and directed by Sylvester Stallone. Although oh, hell yeah, it was Wait, Hold, let's hold staying alive. Let's finish Rambo. <laughs> you play credit with Norman Wexler. Uh, if you want to see a dude who has some fascinating, very kind of uh, all over the place uh, screenplay credits, uh, Norman Wexler. Like yeah. half of the movies that he wrote are stone cold masterpieces uh, that will live on forever. And the other ones are staying alive and Mendingo and drum. Um, so yeah, I gotta, I gotta read Bob uh, Zmuda's book about uh, working with Andy Kaufman and then also being his assistant. Yeah, apparently he was even crazier in real life. Uh, but basically what he did with uh, staying alive that was so ridiculous taking something that was very dark and very gritty and very grim. Like, you know, your, your archetypal 1970s character studies about these kind of horrible, broken people living these kind of sad lives on the fringes of society. And you turn it into a crowd pleaser, you know, yeah. suddenly he's not like a tormented, angry, racist, hateful kind of rapey dude. Suddenly he just wants to achieve his dream that wants to make everything come true. And then, you know, uh, Stallone did the same thing with Rambo and it totally worked. It was a huge, huge love to be a fly on the wall in that meeting where they're like, we got our director and, and Travolta's like, all right, who? And they're like Stallone. Like, <laughs> not, not, you know, I mean, Stallone was at that point was an Oscar nominated screenwriter. So the, uh, I'm not just knocking the guy, but, what a weird fit. What oh, a weird fit. Oh, yeah. I mean, again, to be like, to to pay, and they probably paid him a lot of money. And apparently John Travolta saw Rocky Three and really liked Rocky Three and said, hey, if we can get Sylvester Stallone to do, to, you know, rewrite Norman Wexler's screenplay and make it less depressing and more fun. And also it's a movie about Broadway in the 1983 that's completely heterosexual and nobody uses drugs. Um, Kurtwood Smith is the choreographer again. <laughs> yep. Oh, Rambo's yeah. of what? Uh, and yet the movie is still incredibly homoerotic, and like the whole Satan Valley thing at the back feels like some sort of weird musical version of cruising. Um, so yeah, I, Sylvester Stallone was a weird, weird dude um, who did some great stuff. You know, when he like allowed his ego to not. I guess the other thing too is like in First Blood, Sylvester Stallone is acting. He's playing a character. He's not playing a hero. He's not saying, look how good my abs look. He's not saying, look, I'm the good guy. I mean, he's playing a very dark and disturbed and, and angry character. 
Um, apparently, Kirk Douglas uh, was originally supposed to play the Richard Crenna role. Oh, cool. um, and it's a good role and an interesting relationship. Obviously, you know, would have gone various places. Uh, but it been a different film. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, Kirk Douglas was that interested in, you know, playing second fiddle to anybody, even a dude like Sylvester Stallone at that moment. Um, so, yeah, uh, First Blood is my second movie. And my third movie also stars uh, Mr. Sylvester Stallone. Uh, that would be Tango and Cash. Oh, wow. uh, which I initially, I think the first time I saw it, I was just like, well, it's a very cheesy, very silly um, buddy cop movie. Kind of, you know, the quintessential buddy cop movie. And then the more I see it, the more I see it as just this very sublime, unintentional exercise in self-parody uh, featuring some of my favorite moments, some of my favorite performances, Jack Palance. Oh my God. He deserves whatever, like the, the camp version of an Oscar. Because every line, there's just this, this joy that he brings to it. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, Tango and Cash. Yeah, cash I mean, and Dango. Not a fan of this movie, but I will back you 100% in every moment that Jack Clancy. Yeah. And he, like, shows up in the prison just to, like, get a first-hand glimpse at making sure that everybody's getting tortured. Again, the homoeroticism is pitched to a level that makes absolutely no sense. It is absolutely surreal. Uh, Kurt Russell is in drag for no discernible reason, except that he looks really good in drag. It's a little bit confusing. Uh, it's like when, you know, uh, Bugs Bunny used to wear a, dra- a dress uh, in old Looney Tunes cartoons. Um, so, yeah, I think that was between between Cobra and Tango and Cash. Um, well, you got to wonder when they're making that movie, discovered that he you was have posted. that many gay jokes. You have to wonder, is it unintentional? Like, I believe Nightmare on Elm Street 2 might I don't know, but there's so much homoerotic subtext and references and jokes in Tango and Cash that it becomes text. It does, but I mean, that's, I think that's also, that's just part of the 80s and the 90s, you know, it's kind of like. It is a very, very 80s movie in that way. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there's a, uh, Jensen Karp uh, wrote a very good uh, book. Uh, about, one of the things he said, you know, he was a battle rapper in, in the 90s. And if you were a battle rapper, basically your only weapon was homophobia. You know, like if you, if you, if you like, I'm going to diss other people and I'm not going to accuse them of being gay or I'm not going to play to gay panic, then like you literally would have nothing. Uh, and I kind of feel like it's the same with a lot of, uh, I think, particularly, I think maybe the, the, uh, buddy cop movie, because there's a homoerotic element to it, because there's a sense of like, oh, these two guys, actually, you know, the dynamics right. are not it's different. It's from maybe maybe what is, it's the easy joke. That's it. It's just, that's it. It's the easy joke. You have two cops next to each other. And if you don't have like the easy joke is, Hey, I'm not gay, man. Oh, are you gay? Like that. Yeah. that and, you have, and you have Terry, Terry Hatcher <laughs> at the beginning of the record, literally just there to be like, I'm a sexy woman. I'm here to be sexy. And you know, did I got in half of the movie takes place in prison. Uh, that's another one where God, I think um, the director of Broadway train was the original. Uh, yeah. Andre yeah. yeah, and I had like a bunch of different cinematographers, and obviously, you know, sort of uh, Stallone kind of took over uh, as he has wanted to do. Um, but yeah, that is a movie that I can watch over. And oh time. man, Nate, you know what you should write is a screenplay about all the things that happened on the sets of these movies with Stallone. Like, how did how did these movies happen with like? Well, there's, how, there's how, I mean, there's a famous rivalry between he and and. Um, Schwarzenegger where they used to screw with each other in terms of who got what script when because there was it, they were both always scared that the other guy was going to get a script that they could have done a great job with and so there was huge competition between them and 
Schwarzenegger told the story about how he literally put the word out around town that he was about to sign the deal to make Stop or My Mom Will Shoot so that <laughs> Stallone would buy it so that he could laugh at him later. And if that's true, that's the best thing I've ever heard because heard that entire that movie then becomes an exercise. Not, but I love it. Yeah, it's an entire the entire movie becomes an exercise in one upping somebody who wanted no part of it to begin with. I know it's, that yeah. Well, I kind of feel like I feel like uh, if uh, we, again, I think it comes back to Looney Tunes these days. Uh, I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger would be Bugs Bunny, uh, and yeah. Sylvester Stallone would be Yosemite Sam. Uh, yes, firing at his guns every which way, perpetually getting uh, outplayed and outmaneuvered by Arnold Schwarzenegger, who again, not I don't know. I mean, Sylvester Stallone's an Academy Award nominee several yeah. times over. You know, he wrote the fucking screenplay for Rocky. You know, you can't take that away from him ever. But, you, know, you know, sprinkled throughout, like we love to make fun of Rhinestone and, you know, bad, bad, bad. Uh, but I mean, like Fist is a very good film. A Copland is a very good film, yeah, you know, so yeah. Yeah, like uh, we like, you know, some of his stuff is legitimately good and some of it is fun to make fun of. But, uh, you know, there's always respect. Yeah, um, you know, and again, he kind of he his career was dead for a while there. He was in the you know his uh, the Phantom Zone of doing direct to video movies, and a lot of guys never come back from that, especially if their whole career is built upon being in good shape and being you know uh, athletic and, and macho. Uh, but you know, he came back. He, he came back with, with Rocky. Uh, he came back with Rambo. I mean, he was. The favorite to win to win an Academy Award. Uh, it's it's it's, it's a, he's a resilient motherfucker. Uh, yeah. That's Sylvester Stallone. And again, it's just like he's so weird and interesting, like uh, like Schwarzenegger, you know. Um, and it's almost impossible to buy them as regular human beings. You could I mean, if we had to nominate somebody for being Stallone's official biographer, I would nominate you as I would nominate Matt Singer to do Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, but but you clearly uh, have a clear eye and an affection for his work. So well, you know. I mean, yeah, I, I, I kind of go all over the place. Um, but again, he he has made a lot of very entertaining movies. Sometimes not entertaining the way they are apparently meant to be. Um, but again, he just has a whole lot of personality, which very much cannot be said about Chuck Norris. Um, and speaking of personality, uh, my next one is Miami Connection. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, and I've got. <laughs> you just got, got all excited. Did you hear yeah. that, everybody? <laughs> well, as you guys, uh, as you guys, you guys know, it's tough to, uh, to to get the Patreon going in the positive direction all the time. Uh, so I have this thing where people can pay me one hundred dollars to write about a movie, uh, and it's kind of helped the Patreon and go in a positive direction as opposed to a negative one. And it's introduced me some batshit crazy movies that I might not have seen otherwise. And there's really no reason that I hadn't seen Miami Connection, except that it wasn't, you know, <laughs> it wasn't, um, I have a, I have a clap, I have a Patch Adams clipboard that I write <laughs> all of my assignments on. Uh, oh God, that movie was 98, 99. So at this point, it has outlived several jobs, uh, several several uh, several moves, and the lives of several of the cast members. It's outlived Robin Williams. It's outlived Philip Seymour But yeah, so I had Miami Connection there, um, and oh my god, it is so beautiful. Uh, I don't know how much people know about this movie, but it was this kind of crazy sort of vanity project of this very, very martial arts adept uh, sort of teacher, this kind of uh, guru of, of martial arts schools in the 1980s. And it was designed to be kind of a vehicle to launch him into 
action stardom and has this really fascinating bifurcated quality where part of it is a very nice movie that's kind of childlike and is about a bunch of like weird youth in various homoerotic tableaus. That's a, uh, that's a recurring theme here who live together and they're in a band together and they all go to college together, even though they all appear to be in their thirties. Um, but they're also deadly ninjas and the fighting is really, really good. I mean, it's- I've well seen the movie twice and you describing it still makes me laugh. Oh, I mean, it, 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 they're called the Dragon Sound. Uh, they have these wonderful uh, synth pop anthems about friendship and working together. And it's really like this kind of like weird Mr. Rogers, like everybody can be friends and learn and do martial arts and have fun. And then the other part is them like, beating people to death with their fists and like weeping, uh, you know, cycle chases and, and cocaine. Oh my God. You know? And then there's like this incredibly heavy handed anti-drug message. And they're like, cocaine. It's so dumb and bad. Why does anybody ever want to sell it? Oh my God. And again, it can just be watched over and over and over again. Like, like most people, um, we discovered this one drew through when draft house resurrected. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, and and the joy of it, I I'm a big fan of the entire subgenre of things where you are both a band and also karate experts or mystery <laughs> solvers or uh, supernatural investigators. I just that's the greatest thing in the world, and it's better when the music is really terrifically on brand for what the movie is. So oh, yeah. Miami Connection is the perfect sort of storm of the songs are fantastic, absolutely terrific. And the karate is top notch hilarious. The movie really, and it's, it's also plays to my fetish for ninjas in mundane settings. I love the idea of ninjas doing anything outside of actual ninja stealth and murder. And uh, this movie plays for that too. Ninjas putting up laundry in the backyard. Oh, it's the best. Yeah. The Miami Connection, if you've never seen it and you, you uh, like these um, these resurrected little nuggets, the Astrologer's another one. Uh, thank you, Draft House, for both of those. Yeah, and Dangerous uh, Men. Oh, and Roar, of course, Roar. Roar. All right, what else you got? Um, next one is another very, very 1980s motion picture. And this is, you know, pretty acclaimed, but also a bit of a cult movie, uh, To Live and Die in L.A. Excellent choice. One of, and I haven't seen one it of my very favorite. favorite. Yeah, so I'll, I'll leave it to you. One of my very favorite endings of the 80s. I think oh, it's it's astounding at how jet black it is. And if the rest of the movie was any lighter than that, the ending would be the gut punch of all gut punches. But by that point, well, you're, you, you're already somewhat numbed. Have you uh, have you seen the infamous deleted scene with the alternate ending? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just say it's, that, uh, and again, I, I'm kind of a, you know, a William Friedkin is such a, such a hard ass, such a badass. I'm kind of surprised that that even got filmed because again, it's, it has such a wonderfully fatalistic quality to it. It's about somebody who is chasing death. Uh, somebody who is driven to a pathological degree. Um, it also has one of the great uh, bad guys in the 1980s, which is William, uh, William Defoe. Yeah, um, an androgynous art dealer who is also just really fucking evil. Um, and, and William Peterson, not a great actor, but cast in the right role, he can be really, really effective. And that freaking, and, freaking and man got it. Like between yeah. that and Manhunter, they understood exactly what he was. And there's some weird 
bow-legged, intense cowboy thing going on with young William Peterson that's terrific. My what I remember when the movie was getting ready to come out, and there was the controversy because the Treasury Department stepped in and made them alter the opening of the film because it did too good a job of laying out how to create counterfeit money. And <laughs> that was like the best ad anybody could have run for that movie and freaking milk that publicity. And dude, what a great compliment to you as a filmmaker. Hey, too good. Too good a job, dude. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that revisit. I, I remember very little of it, but I am also a freaking freak. Nice. Yeah. It's going to be a nice rediscovery for you, man. Oh, yeah. Great, great score as well. Like one of the great uh, sort of pop scores. Uh, yeah, just, again, it kind of has a sort of uh, electric, uh, neon lurid quality to it uh, that I really, really like. Yeah, that's one that I can always go back and rewatch. Oh, and then the next thing, speaking of, of, uh, of happy dudes with, with cheerful personalities, uh, Paul Schrader's Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. Ooh, nice. Uh, which is, again, just one of the, you know, I've, I have not seen, uh, is it Hereditary? Is that, uh, what, no, what, not first, first, what's, what's uh, the new uh, Paul Schrader movie that he loves? First Reformed. First yeah. Reformed. I've not seen that yet, um, but I think you know, Mishima is Paul Schrader's masterpiece. Um, there's just this ambition to it. Um, it's about the sort of legendary um, writer who was kind of insane um, and had these enormous delusions of grandeur. And this really, really fascinating fellow that he fetishized and eroticized sort of male power and sort of the military lifestyle and this kind of strength. And he was a homosexual gentleman. And the fascinating thing about Mishima is they gave um, Paul Schrader the rights to uh, his story and to adapt some of his stories as well. So it's a kind of very fascinating structure where part of it is a um, dramatization of some of his famous short stories. And then part of it is about his life and more specifically about how he, <laughs> he kind of took his delusions of grandeur to the uh, farthest end by trying to take over the government uh, so that he could kind of like rebuild the monarchy and turn it into the sort of like honor bound world that he desired. Um, so what they did was they had to establish, you know, his homosexuality and, and kind of central uh, nature it had to his writing, kind of his worldview. And he's kind of an interesting like sort of Trump figure in some ways. And that he was an entertainer and a famous entertainer um, who had these weird ideas and wanted to run society. Um, and the way that he went about it was trying to take over the government and then committing uh, ritualistic suicide um, when that doesn't happen. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was Paul Schrader and I believe the executive producers are George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola and maybe Steven Spielberg. And some very, very heavy hitters. The idea being like this movie will make no money. Uh, there is very little. It's an art house movie to be sure. It's also about a homosexual writer at a time when that wasn't something that really happened in commercial movies. But it's really, really beautiful. And like I said, it kind of has this, this very tragic element to it, where it's all leading to this end game, where he's choosing sort of uh, ritualistic. Um, Oblivion, you know, it, it's kind of about suicide as an erotic act um, in, in its own kind of way. So, yeah, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, if you have not seen it, see it. It's incredibly intense and incredibly beautiful and definitely one of the best things Paul Trader has done as a director. And one of the only films where we 
that he directed that match the best that he's done as a writer, you know, for stuff like Taxi Driver and Raging That Ball. is our, uh, that will be our next Paul Schrader film. We've already covered American Gigolo and Cat People, and I look forward to delving into this one because I've heard from many people, including, I believe, the late, great Roger Ebert, that this is uh, one of his masterpieces. So. Oh, yeah. I, I remember 15-year-old me reading about it in Time magazine. And all it took was executive producer George Lucas. And I went, well, I'm going then. Yeah. And 15 year old me was not prepared for what the fuck happened in that theater. That is a huge, huge, ambitious chunk of movie. And I do think it's one of those rare cases where if you don't know the subject at all, walking in, it may not play for you. You may not get much out of that first experience because Schrader was so immersed in Mishima's life by the time he made the film that the nimble way that he plays with his fiction and his writing and his life and his biography and artificial surfaces and realism and the way he folds all of that into this crazy fucking omelet of a movie, um, it it is not designed for the beginner it is not designed for you to just skim across the surface of and go i got it i got i got most of it and it's a demanding sit and i do think criterion did a beautiful job with it of sort of putting together a set that if you watch everything on the criterion set the context is laid down so firmly that all the puzzle pieces will fit but it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of movie and i I think seeing it young and not getting it the first time made it really daunting to go back to. And I've always been rewarded every time I've gone back and tried to get more out of it, but it's a movie I'm still mining. Well, and it's also, I think a very creative, like uh, portrayal of men on the edge, uh, sort of men who, uh, yeah, were almost too intense uh, and too violent and too honor bound to exist in a society that doesn't really have a place for them. Um, but yeah, See, that doesn't sound like Paul Schrader at all. That doesn't sound yeah. like his work. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's about a man out of time, you know, sort of a, 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 an honor bound, you know, somebody who, who would want to be there with Arahito, um, but was instead, you know, watching this kind of degraded culture. And again, this, this weird kind of puritanism. Um, and yeah, just these, these very, very different ideas. Um, and my next book, my next movie is very, very different. Uh, it's called Lady, another kind of lost movie that was kind of re- refound uh, recently. Ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. Oh, yay! Uh, yeah. yeah, which is God. Lou Adler, I believe, has only directed two movies. I know, uh, and not a yeah. bad track record, man. No, 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 no. So he did. Um, it's an up in smoke, right? Yeah, he did uh, up in smoke, which is a great movie. And again, I mean, that's the only good, I mean, with the exception of After Hours, uh, which I do not necessarily think of as a Chishin Chong movie, even though Chishin Chong are in it. Oh, yeah, no, they've been funny in many, many films. But yeah, I'm with you. I think uh, Drew and I have had fun debates about this. We both agree Up in Smoke is a legitimately good film, funny but- debut. Next movie, it's like a decent episode of SNL. And then for me, that's it. It just yeah. falls apart. Well, and the other thing that's great about Up in Smoke is that it's a very 1970s. You know, you it's know. all these kind of fuck ups and the fringes of society. Stacey Keach is hilarious in it. Shot gorgeous two three five scope for some reason. Yeah, they're, they're actually, loves the LA angle. The, the old yeah, yeah, very LA. much. So. Um, and then, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stands is a very fascinating thing where it was written by Carolyn Coons, sort of a sort of a very famous um, sort of punk rock writer, and Lou Adler, interesting figure where he is the most establishment figure in music 
pretty much imaginable. I mean, he's the dude with in the sunglasses, like hanging out with uh, Jack Nicholson at the LA Lakers games. And he also made one of the quintessential punk rock movies, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous dance. And there's this fascinating question, Paul, where there's this real, um, there's this real punk anger and this real punk aggression and this real uh, punk irreverence uh, as sort of embodied by Diane Lane, who is very oh. young. Uh, when you start in this and Laura Dern, Holy shit. Um, in case you were wondering, Diane Lane and Laura Dern have always been fucking amazing. And they're incredible in this movie as these teenagers who are kind of like the runaways who start this group to kind of, you know, express their anger and rage at a world that does not understand them. And then they kind of get co-opted. Uh, they kind of sell their soul. And there's this idea, I think, that Lou Adler... God bless him. Not a punk rocker, not a feminist, not somebody who necessarily like saw the value and the artistry and somebody like the runaways. So you have this push and pull where a lot of the people who are making the film, uh, God, the, the sex pistols, uh, rhythm section, Paul cook and uh, Steve Jones there. Um, in it as well, they kind of play these. Yeah. Uh, this punk rock group that is very, very you know, kind of like, so there's this very, very interesting element to it where on one hand, it's very, very cynical and kind of a sexist, shitty, like, man, this is all kind of a, all kind of a put on. And this is all kind of a, kind of, kind of a, a sham. But at the same time, there's also this very real anger to it and this real sense of, you know, that this music means something and these people mean something. It also came out in a weird time where it was on the shelf for so long that the Go-Go's came out <laughs> And the Go-Go's were sort of like the Runaways minus, you know, the punk rock energy and plus a lot of sugar and hit songs and hit videos. So the fans kind of became the Go-Go's at the end of the movie in a way that doesn't really make sense and kind of counter uh, counteracts a lot of the film. So it's kind of a movie that's at war with itself, but that's kind of what makes it so fascinating. I'm a big fan as well. I love Ray Winston and I think his work as the leader of that band and the way he and Diane Lane spar throughout the film is terrific. And I love all the supporting players. I, when we talked about it, I, there's that great scene where the guy who drives the bus has the conversation with Diane Lane and kind of lays his world out for her. And I love him so much that I would have just watched if the movie had followed him out of frame and just gone to do whatever he was doing for the rest of it, I would have been fine with it. I think that it, it's a really rich character driven film. And yeah, Diane Lane on fire in that movie. It is a ferocious performance. And for all the talk of the young men who were sort of defining Hollywood at that moment, and, you know, the outsiders cast is kind of a who's who of those young guys. And you got, you know, Mickey Rourke working and the diner cast working. But Diane Lane was right in the middle of all that, toe for toe to toe with them, giving terrific performances. The only thing that held her back from being as big as any of them is the problem that most young women have material. There wasn't always that material. So when she got hold of it, like she did here, hot damn, she ripped with it. Yeah, I discovered this one through the show. I don't know if I'd ever would have watched this movie just uh, if it wasn't for this podcast. So uh, what, what one thing that I noticed about this movie is fascinating to me is that it was written by Nancy Dowd who wrote Slapshot um, and wrote this under, as a, a, in, an, I'm sorry, with a male non de plume. She wrote it as Rob Morton. Uh, well, that, was, that was a frequent thing of hers. Nancy Dowd did that a lot. And I think it speaks to the world that she wrote in. And, you know, the movie, we talked about the the newscasters that run throughout the film. That great subplot with 
name off of it because Lou Adler made so many changes and changed the fundamental thing. I think that may have been a matter of that they just messed with it so much that she mm-hmm. wanted to take her name off of it. I could but be I wrong. I think I could see why you would, why she'd want to have a, maybe take, choose a male uh, uh, nom de plume for, uh, uh, for a slap shot. I, I guess that makes sense, but this is a movie about young women. It just, I was like, huh, that one, that one seems odd. But yeah, it's a good point. Maybe they just changed it so much. She said, that's not my script. Yeah, but I'm glad that they recovered it, you know, because it was a lost film for a while. And it's something that just people had fuzzy memories of seeing at Night Flight. Um, so yeah, I think it was Shout Factory. Uh, they came back and then put out a proper uh, reissue of it. And yeah, I think it's one of the most truthful and honest movies about show business and about music and how it's incredibly corrupt, <laughs> no yeah. matter how you look at it. Yep, and also again, we're worth repeating that Diane Lane is fantastic. So is Laura Dern. Uh, Christine Lottie's in it too. She's also quite good. good. Um, All right, you got any more? I do. I've got two more. more. Uh, Oh, two more. Perfect. Okay. I've got uh, one from the uh, very end of the decade. Uh, This is John Dahl's uh, film debut. Uh, Nifty little neo noir called "Kill Me Again." Nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Starring uh, Val Kilmer uh, back when. Now, he had his mojo working, uh, and Joanne Wally Kilmer. Um, I think this was a movie. No, no, no. They they met on Willow. Did they not? Uh, um, they did, and then yeah. started, and then kind of were starting to become a a traveling pair. Like I, I was intrigued when they did this film at the idea that they were going to start working together in film after film because they were both really good and really interesting. And well, she, I, she, she had a moment, you know, she had Willow and then she had scandal where she's really, really good playing a very complicated, very dark, very sexual character. She plays a femme fatale and kill me again. Uh, and is real. I mean, it's the dynamic is it's kind of common to a lot of, uh, film noirs where the femme fatale is very, very sharp uh, and very conniving and, you know, uh, has her shit together. And then the dude, I believe he's a detective. Uh, is a bit of a bungler, uh, and his you know his his uh, faculties are clouded by the fact that he's lost with this incredibly beautiful woman. And the other thing that I remember very very vividly about Kelly again is Michael Madsen. Uh, the first time I've ever like stood up and took notice of him. And if I remember correctly, there is a scene in which he tortures somebody uh, who is sitting in a chair and there may even be a pop song going on while he's doing it. And I I would never want to suggest that maybe Quentin Tarantino saw things in movies that he liked and then decided that he would (laughs) offer them. But uh, I, when I saw Reservoir Dogs, I remember thinking, wow, it's, Pretty weird that Michael Madsen is playing a character very, and part of it also like he's Michael Madsen. He's not going to cast in a Mr. Rogers biopic. Uh, he's, he is going to play characters who torture and murder people. Um, but I was uh, I was very impressed. I, mean, it's, I was his importance in uh, Kill Me Again is as impressive as his turn in Reservoir Dogs. It's a little less yeah. well known. Most people will know John Dahl uh, from what uh, Last Seduction, which is phenomenal. Yeah, West was the next movie that he did, which oh, I Red Rock West also yeah, really yeah, good. that was a freaking HBO original movie, yeah. uh, or at least it debuted on HBO. And they're like, "Holy shit!" Somebody made like this really awesome little noir. Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he Joyride, I think was was a pretty solid film. Yes, uh, I, know, I think he does a lot of TV, but uh, there was you know like a six seven year stretch where John Dahl was the king of neo noir. And uh, Kill Me Again, I think, is lesser known than Red Rock West and The Last Seduction, but every bit is good. I think he did, he did Rounders, too, did he not? 
Yes, he did. Yeah, people like rounders. I've seen that in a while. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely had a sensibility that uh, that John Dahl. And then my final one, uh, again, going in a little bit of a different direction, but also incredibly grim, uh, Pennies from Heaven. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Teacher is one of my favorite uh, Christopher Walken uh, performances. I'm laughing yep. in appreciation. Drew and I have come back to this one many, many times in, in, in different episodes on for, for Bernadette Peters, for Steve Martin, for Herbert Ross, for Walken, but I'm, I'll let you go, Nate. I, I love this movie. Well, I mean, it's, it's kind of, you know, uh, Dennis Potter was the king of uh, a British miniseries, and he kind of had this thing, this very unique shtick. And what it was, was he was kind of, he explored the tragic and the dramatic and the tragic comic elements of lip syncing and old music and the emotional connection that we have with old music. So what he did was he basically wrote a musical uh, set in the Great Depression about a um, uh, song sheet salesman played by Steve Martin. And this was very interesting because Steve Martin was probably the most successful stand-up comedian in the world uh, when this came out or he had just retired from his position as the most popular stand-up comedian in the world. He'd done The Jerk. Uh, which was an enormous, enormous, iconic hit, you know, kind of his, uh, his shtick in its purest uh, form. And then he made this unbelievably depressing movie about this horrible, horrible man who's horny and, you know, uh, selfish. And, and again, I think Americans, we like our dreamers to be innocent and wholesome and uh, want the right things for the right reasons. And, because he's played by Steve Martin and because he's kind of achingly human, you empathize with him, you empathize with him. But he's kind of a piece of shit. Yep. And he sort of goes down this dark road and Christopher Walken plays a uh, plays a, a, a tap dancing pimp. Um, yeah, it's one of the few times where he gets to both, you know, be the Broadway song and dance man and the most disturbing, creepy man in the entire world. Uh, there's also an actor who's, as actor slash dancer who's forget he does an accordion dance um that's one of the most haunting things of all time and i think part of the reason why you know it didn't do very well at the box office it didn't get great reviews when it came out was herbert ross directs it and ross has made some very solid movies but he's not a terribly distinctive filmmaker um you know he just kind of takes what he has and translates it to the, to the screen and i think you know somebody like know, david lynch uh had directed pennies from heaven i think you know it would be received in a much different way and it would also be very very differently directed so yeah i think it's one of the best things uh that steve martin has ever done uh and i also don't know that it's not at all surprising uh, why it was not a hit it's but I, kind of to be talk on this yeah. about steve martin's early choices after right after the jerk i believe it was true was it was a dead uh, pennies then dead men the man with two brains then yeah. lonely Night, yeah. right yeah, he, he was, you could very clearly see that Steve was bristling at the box that he had built for himself. And as successful as the jerk is, what I find intriguing about he and Carl Reiner collaborating together repeatedly over the course of the decade is you see them trying on different versions of what a Steve Martin movie is. And there is no recurring bit. There is no one voice from the jerk to Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid to Man With Two Brains to... Uh, all of me and you they all really feel very independent and very by you know uh, as if each one is a distinct thing and not just a steve martin movie i think we're so used to comic actors being 
they just build vehicles around them that when somebody comes along who's like Steve Martin, who defines himself first as a comic, but then also wants to become invisible as an actor, it was really hard to get our heads around. And pop culture had a hard time with both him and Robin Williams for the same reason. Well, I think there's also this idea that when uh, comedians do dramatic performances, it's not a matter of building a character so much as it's uh, going without your shtick, um, skewing all of the things that you did. And that can be, I mean, like, for example, I think of, you know, um, Jim Carrey and, and Truman Show. Uh, there's just, there's a kind of a blank, blankness to it that's kind of intentional, you know, because he's playing a character who kind of has been living in this world. But again, it's a tricky, tricky thing. And the fact that Demern was willing to play such a dark, unlikable character, uh, I think was very audacious. I think also if this movie had come out in 1977, it would be received differently. I think in 1981, people wanted to enjoy movies. They wanted to have a laugh uh, with Demern. They did not want to be reminded of, you know, life's unfathomable cruelty. Uh, and the way that it destroys people uh, and, and and makes a mockery of their dreams. <laughs> it really is a depressing movie. <laughs> you mean, oh, I'm thinking God. you're really selling it. And I'm like, no, no, he's yeah. right. <laughs> I like everything else that Dennis Potter uh, has written. Uh, this is that one movie that's super, super depressing. Yeah, oh, God, we're getting into more Dennis Potter as we get through the decade, too. Next month, we're doing Gorky Park, which he adapted from the uh, the novel. Right. And, um, and well, here's a little sneak preview. Gorky Park is a fantastic film. So I wanted to talk to you, Nathan, before we uh, before we wrap things up today um, about sort of the the what happens to a pop culture writer, because I'm going through something right now that I would imagine you've gone through several times with the projects that you've worked on. When you're doing this kind of laser focused project, when you decide I'm going to do something that's very tunnel vision, it's a very... It's got a quantifiable beginning, middle, and end, um, and I, it's got a limited scope so that I can focus my writing. That's a great thing for a writer to do because it, the temptation, of course, is to try and write about everything, and we can't. I, we can't cover every single thing. So it really becomes the the longer you do this, and hopefully the more you are writing for yourself and your audience as opposed to writing for clicks, then hopefully you're, you're picking topics that you're really interested in, that you want to do the deep dives on. So when we picked the 80s, I was excited to do this and to do the project where we're going month by month through every title, um, watching everything again. What I didn't realize is how I would start to feel like Billy Pilgrim, like unstuck in time, because I I feel like I'm living the 80s again. I'm getting I'm remembering tactile things about this pop culture and what it did to me and how I digested it. And because I'm a very different person now. It's creating a weird echo as well as some dissonance, and it, it's fascinating. And I don't know that anybody who hasn't done this kind of project would understand what it does to your head to have two timelines running at the same time. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, one of the big projects that I'm doing right now is I'm writing a project called uh, The Weird Accordion to Al. Uh, and what happened was, God. Uh, <laughs> I get it. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, no, no. For, so people don't have to hit the back button. Say the title again, please. The, the title is called The Weird Accordion to Al. Love it. Uh, and what happened is about uh, God, uh, seven years ago, I got a, a Twitter message from Weird Al Yankovic saying that of all the critics in the world, I've chosen you to tell my story in uh, coffee table form. Coffee, coffee table form. Just as a coffee table. You're designing a coffee table? A coffee table. A coffee table book. 
That's a much more uh, appropriate story, medium for telling somebody's story than a piece of furniture. Um, so I wrote his coffee table book and it was a really great experience. And I was kind of living in that world when I was doing it. And then uh, when I was thinking of projects for my new website, I saw that he had a, uh, he had a box set coming out. So I thought, oh, I didn't write enough about Weird Al Yankovic in the coffee table book because, you know, it's kind of a primer to his career. It was only about 12,000 words long. It was primarily uh, driven by uh, photographs. So I thought, I can go back and write about every single song Weird Al Yankovic has ever done in chronological order. So I have been doing that, and it's been a very, very immersive experience. It's taken a lot longer than I anticipated. Like, it would be like if we were given carte blanche to sit down with Spielberg and discuss each individual feature, but instead you're talking with Weird Al about the origin well, of each. No, I'm, I'm he's, there's no, he's, not, he's not actually involved at this part. Uh, he's, going to, uh, he's going to copy edit it. Oh, okay. When I'm done, uh, but right now it's kind of like my take on his world, and we start on December 24th, 1979, uh, with the release of the uh, My Bologna single. He's, he just turned 20 years old, so I've been working through that, and it's been fascinating. And and again, part of my brain is always devoted to the Weird Al song that I'm writing about. And, you know, sometimes that's a great thing when you're writing about something like Dare to be Stupid, which is you know, a Devo parody, which has so much depth to it, so much life. My, my son, who's three and a half years old, he's just really started getting into Weird Al, which has been a really, really nice experience. But sometimes it's stuff like uh, Taco Grande. The people who, the real old school uh, Weird Al fans, within five minutes of a conversation, it always gets around to, which is your favorite non-parody? Which is your favorite original? That, right. That's, you know, like we all, love, everybody knows the parodies, but the real fans after like 10 minutes, we settle into like, dare to be stupid versus this is the life, you know? Right, right, right. Oh, and that's the other, one of the great things that kind of happened for this was, you know, writing about it. I, yeah, I wouldn't say that I don't like the parodies. I like the parodies a lot. I dramatically prefer the original songs. And that's kind of a recurring theme. And about, uh, about a year into this, Weird Al Yankovic announced that he was, for the first time in his career, he was going to be touring and only playing original songs. Originals, right. Uh, yeah, it was called the, uh, the uh, Self-Indulgent Vanity Tour. Um, and it was crazy. It was like, you know, uh, it was like I was willing him to do this, uh, this concert tour. And I ended up going to seven dates on it. Uh, God, I started in Chicago, two shows, then Milwaukee, then Wabash, Indiana. Um, Beautiful. And it was, I, I mean, it's a, and I had to like, I had to like do a Facebook uh, post and be like, I'm stuck in Wabash, Indiana. Can anybody give me a ride? And what, uh, uh, what can you, was, was one show a standout? Was one show particularly? I, w- I would have to say the, the one show that really stood out in my mind uh, was Augusta. Um, and, and part of it was, it was an amazing show and he played a bunch of, Really, really obscure songs uh, he'd never done before. He actually played, if I'm not mistaken, "Party in the Leper Colony." All right, <laughs> which I'm I'm kind of amazed that he would ever perform. Is that, that. like is that from like is that a B side or is that from 3D? It's, it's, from, it's from one of his later albums. He actually has a story about how uh, okay. Clarence Clemens was going to play the saxophone on it because it's kind of a Bo Diddley uh, pastiche slash homage. You know, it kind of has a do 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 do. Yeah. And then Clarence Clemens uh, saw what the title of it was and said, yeah, I'm not going to <laughs> on this song. Not going to lend my enormous talent to party at the leper colony. Uh, so he was, uh, he was standing there and he was saying, you know, um, I was introducing the song uh, Albuquerque. And he mm-hmm. said, oh, you know, um, 
at various times, you know, I was asked to write a, uh, an autobiography or a memoir, but, you know, I didn't want to do that. Uh, instead, I had this guy, Nathan Rabin, uh, who's here in the audience tonight, um, write a, a coffee table book. And he's writing, a, and then he's writing a second book about me because the first one didn't, you know, uh, left too many unanswered questions. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So like the person next to me was like, oh, my God, you just mentioned your name. Uh, so part of it was that I, you know, had like a 26 hour, uh, plus ride, uh, to get to Augusta that again involves, you know, making a Facebook post saying, can somebody drive me 40 miles to another weird place in Indiana? Um, so that was, that was definitely the highlight of it. Um, but, but yeah, so that was one where just like my mind has been partially in the real world and then partially in whatever stage of Weird Al's career I happen to be covering. I just wrote about, uh, the song Skipper Dan. Uh, from 2009. Um, and, and then it's just like, the more you write about something, the more you get out of it. And I was kind of worried, like, how will I find 600 to a thousand words to write about everything he's done, including, you know, 13 second long uh, song snippets. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's been a really great experience. I think part of it is like with our show, it's like part of it is you want to be able to, you say that you took on and, and finished a big project that it hasn't been done. And no. like, you know, in, in the on the online writing world, to bring it back to what Drew was talking about, there's so, you know, if if an editor says, hey, Scott, can you do me something uh, best slasher films of the 80s? I'm like, hell yeah. So I write my piece and then I'm send it into my text. And then I'm like, mm, did I miss any? And I go, dude, you do a Google search and that article has been done 19 times already. So like the key, I think finding something unique, like I, I hope we've all done in some way is is I think inspir- is is what we can send to younger readers is or younger writers is. Well, I think also too, I mean, like part of what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a 42 year old, uh, man. Uh, and, and part of that is, is a positive thing and that I feel like I have a lot of a base of experience and I have a, a lot of knowledge and I, I have a unique perspective based on the work that I've been doing. Um, and, and that's part of the reason why I started my own website was I, there are certain things that I could do better than anybody else, you know, like there's no other, there's no other person who was a film critic for 18 years and also spoke at the Juggalo March on Washington, nope. uh, you know, who was also <laughs> like 40, you know, so I have a unique set of life experiences and this was part of it. Um, so yeah, it, it's, it's been fascinating. God, I've done other projects. I mean, my world of flops, um, the year. Uh, I mean, that was really interesting. And I think kind of early on, I could realize, like, I don't want to let go of this. Like, this can't just be one year project. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing to find things that you are obsessed about and to start a goal and to doggedly pursue it and to finish it. And I've, I've taken weeks off. I've taken months off of the Weird Al thing uh, just because it gets a little too exhausting. And it's really, you know, time and labor intensive. But it feels good to be very passionate about it. I mean, that was like when I was at the uh, when I was at the shows, it felt wonderful. You know, it felt like I had been cramming for that. It was like I'd taken a. It was like I had uh, you know created a test uh, for something that didn't even exist. You know, yeah. and I thought, you know, yeah, yeah, you created a huge challenge for yourself, and sometimes it feels overwhelming. But then you take a step back, and you're like, I'm knee deep in something I truly love. So even yeah. if it, even if it becomes stressful or difficult, I'm still knee deep in something I love, whether it's 80s movies or Weird Al or my love for Drew. Well, and one of the other, one of the other kind of things behind this was, you know, the, I don't have to remind the two of you that the pop culture uh, is terrifying 
and mercurial and there are ups and downs and, you know, it, it crushes people's spirit. So you kind of have to find love and you have to find, you know, genuine joy uh, in it. A, a part of it also was, you know, um, <laughs> when I started the website, Donald Trump is president and I need to not think about Donald Trump all the time because then my brain will explode and like, I won't be able to do what I have to do. So I'm like, if I'm thinking about Weird Al, that, that positive energy of writing about something that I love will not go to being angry that the president of the United States is a drained me. And I still, I mean, you know, one of the things I, I discovered writing the uh, website is I'm, I enjoy being a blogger. And I like the challenge of four days out of the week. I have to think of something to be about my family or it can be about, you know, politics. It can be about music or, or you know, mental illness or depression. Um, and it's a challenge that I really, really love. Uh, well, the last thing you wrote that I really loved was about Steven Seagal. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and again, that's one of those things where I kind of felt like I was put on earth to read these ridiculously badly written, self-indulgent, insane celebrity books. I mean, I had a column for uh, the indie club called the Silly Showbiz Book Club. And I'd write about these books and kind of the idea was to write about books that A, had no business being published, B, (laughs) were never meant to be, you know, uh, reviewed or written about. Oh my God, I wrote about Don't Hassle the Hoff. Uh, (laughs) The Hasselhoff's memoir, that's it. Where he really has like a Christ complex, you know, he sort of depicts himself as like single-handedly ending the cold war. And like, I would of- call that column. If I was doing that column, I'd call it dollar store biography. That, that is it's funny that you say that. Cause the last, the last book that I wrote about it for it was, uh, was I purchased at the dollar store and it was Tatum O'Neill's book, a paper life. Oh, and that a fucking, <laughs> if you thought Ryan O'Neill was a bad actor, wait until you hear about his parenting. Wow. Well, Nathan, I want to thank you so much. You gave us exactly what we wanted. Drew, would you agree or disagree? Oh, I'm a big fan. Big fan. And I, I appreciate you not only doing the legwork, but coming really loaded to talk about the movies. Uh, always fun, man. Definitely support this gentleman and follow him on Twitter, Nathan Raven. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Mm-hmm.